Bipolar disorder is one of the most heritable mental illnesses. Yet the genetic underpinnings of the disease have, until recently, been mostly a mystery. Researchers guessed that there were a handful of genes involved in the illness, but they did not even know how many they were looking for. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. This is Innovations in Medicine. This week, we're talking about the use of a new technology to uncover the genes that contribute to bipolar disorder and some of the surprising results. My guest is Dr. Francis McMahon, a psychiatrist at the National Institute of Mental Health outside Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, Dr. McMahon. Thank you for having me. Now, why has it been so difficult to unravel the genetics of bipolar disorder? Well, it hasn't been crystal clear why it's been so hard, because bipolar disorder is actually one of the most heritable illnesses around, uh, with something on the order of 80% of the individual variation and risk being explained by genes. Okay, so from a, from a naive point of view, it sounds like if it's that heritable, uh, this ought to be an easy one. Exactly, and actually bipolar disorder is one of the very first diseases to be uh, subjected to the newest genetic technologies back in the 1980s, which were then genetic linkage studies. Those are the kinds of things that gave us the, the gene for uh, cystic fibrosis and, and a few others, muscular dystrophy. Exactly, and Huntington's disease. And uh, after that string of successes, there actually was an early report of a uh, significant genetic linkage for bipolar disorder. But we soon after realized that actually uh, the story was a lot more complicated for bipolar disorder. But the bipolar disorder wasn't unique in this regard, that a lot of other highly heritable conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity also uh, did not have simple genetic explanations. Now, the, these linkage studies are in part a kind of a statistical analysis, which can, which can be complex. I think uh, there were a number of linkages that appeared and then later disappeared over the years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. For a variety and, of illnesses. And, <laughs> I'm sorry? For a variety of illnesses. That's exactly right. And, and we're now starting to understand what that uh, the explanation for that might be, and that is that these illnesses actually are the result of multiple genes, each contributing a small amount to risk. Under that circumstance, linkage studies are a very unreliable and not very powerful way to detect the genes involved. So um, you've taken some steps forward with this. How did you do it? Well, we used an approach called a genome-wide association study that takes advantage of the technological and informatics advances of the Human Genome Project over the last 10 years. Now that we, we know the complete sequence of the human genome and have developed a set of markers that span every gene and actually all the regions in between genes as well, it's now possible to actually interrogate every gene in the genome for its possible involvement in disease. Okay, the, the, now these markers are what some of our listeners will know as SNPs. Exactly, single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are just spelling variations in the DNA sequence, typically with, with just two different forms, an A and a T, a C and a G, etc. Now the, these in themselves don't mean much. In and of themselves, they often don't mean much, although occasionally they can have functional significance that isn't yet fully understood. But the main reason that they're, they're used in these kinds of studies is because they act as signposts, allowing us to uh, look at the frequency of various forms of genes in the population. So you, you've got a group of people with bipolar disorder and a group without, and you say that those with bipolar disorder have this set of SNPs and the other group does not. Is that how it works? Exactly. And, and there are various statistical issues that we need to address along the way because we typically are doing between uh, 500,000 and a million tests in each one of these studies. 
So this is – give us – because this is an interesting new technology, uh, just a, a little bit more detail on, on how that works. You, you take – I guess you take blood from a, from a subject and then how do you do 500,000 tests on that? Right. Well, this was the other major advance that was needed to be able to, to make a, a genome-wide association studies feasible. Uh, our research volunteers provide a blood sample, which typically is uh, turned into a, a, an immortalized cell line that can be stored uh, under uh, frozen conditions for many decades. From, from the subject's own cells. From the subject's own blood cells. Mm-hmm. And, and that way we don't need to, to bother our subjects again when we need an additional supply of DNA. But that's all old stuff. We've been able to do that for 25 years. The new thing is that once we take that DNA, uh, we can now apply it to a chip, uh, a, a, a glass slide, that contains on it an array of SNPs. Uh, in in, in the, uh, the, the version of the chip that we use for our experiment, it's about a half million such SNPs, but actually there will soon be on the market uh, uh, arrays that have a million SNPs or more. And the, these SNPs are uh, chosen to sample common variation seen uh, in uh, the human genome. Uh, right now, the, the set of markers uh, is best at detecting common variation in Europeans and, and, and people of European heritage. But the next generation of, uh, of chips will also be very good at picking up common variation in people of African and Asian heritage. So a, a chip with 500,000 SNPs on it, how, is it the size of a microscope slide? Is it the size of half the laboratory? How, how yeah, big is that? They're very close to the size of a microscope slide. In fact, uh, when we do the experiments, we use the old microscope slide boxes to store the chips in. The machine itself that reads the chips is, is about the size, say, of, of, of a, a desktop computer and has uh, only a few other things attached to it. So it's all remarkably compact and very automated. So it's possible in a single experiment to, uh, to assay something on the order of 32 people uh, in a day and get through a, a typical uh, size sample of 2,000 people, 1,000 cases and 1,000 controls in a matter of a couple of months. If you've just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Dr. Francis McMahon, a psychiatrist at the National Institute of Mental Health. Now, we've talked about the technology. I think we've kept listeners in suspense long enough. Uh, you've used this with uh, bipolar disorder. And what? Tell us something about the findings. Well, the surprising thing is that we found that there were many genes probably something on the order of 80 that were involved in the disorder. Well, isn't, we thought there were multiple genes involved. Yes, we thought there were multiple. But we never expected to be quite this many. Okay. And, and the design we used is we, we had two different samples, uh, uh, individuals who were collected uh, and participated in studies here in, in the United States as part of the National Institute of Mental Health Genetics Initiative, which is a, a collaboration that's gone on for the last 15 years, and also a similarly sized group of people with bipolar disorder and matched controls who were collected by collaborators uh, in Germany. We then uh, looked for uh, markers that had significant frequency differences between the cases and the controls in the NIMH sample and looked for the same marker and the same version to be significantly different in the German sample. Why would we be interested in two different samples like that? Why is that important? Well, there are two reasons that, that it's important. One is, I, I mentioned earlier, that we're doing something on the order of a half million tests here. So uh, if you do your, your, uh, your basic statistics, you soon find that in order for a test to be truly significant in a statistical sense, we would need to correct it for a half million independent tests, which requires uh, astronomically small measures of st- statistical significance. 
the the uh, the value of the replication sample here, the German sample, is it allows us to to carry out far fewer tests. Well, since we only check those SNPs that were significant in the NIMH sample in the German sample. Right now, uh, now that you found eighty genes. Um, that sounds very complicated to me. Do you sometimes wish, think you were better off not knowing at all? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I think most of us working in this field had long ago given up the hope that the answer here was going to be simple. <laughs> but even out of this complex set, some interesting leads have emerged. The most significant finding involves a gene that encodes the protein diacylglycerol kinase eta which is, or DGKH, which is a key enzyme in the phosphatidylinositol pathway, one of the signaling pathways in the brain that has long been known to be uh, sensitive to lithium. And lithium, as you know, is, is really the gold standard treatment for bipolar disorder. So when we saw that, we thought, gee, we might be on to something here that, that connects with a body of, uh, of knowledge we have from neuropharmacology telling us uh, one of the places where lithium is thought to act. So these, these 80, uh, I think what you're suggesting, uh, these 80 are not all created equal. Some may be more important, some less important. Yes, and, and the way to judge that importance is partly on statistical grounds, but mostly on, on trying to understand how they fit into known biochemical pathways. That's why DGKH caught our eye. Some of the other findings, though, are, are, are just as strong statistically, but implicate novel pathways that previously have not been known to be involved either in bipolar disorder or in the action of mood-stabilizing medications. So this is one of the great things about a genome-wide association study. Since it's an unbiased test of all the genes, it can actually give us new insights into the kinds of, uh, of biochemical changes that might be involved in causing a disease. So, you, in other words, you're not looking for your car keys underneath the street lamp. You're looking uh, everywhere and uh, even in the dark corners where you might not have known to look. Exactly. And although there are still a few shadows, uh, even with the, the half million SNP chips, uh, we, we think we, we've picked a lot of the, uh, of, of the strongest signals here. Now, of, of the 80, are there others besides the, the one that you mentioned that, um, that seem to have particular significance or might have special significance? Well, two or three of the other genes fall into a signaling pathway known as the WNT-WINT pathway, which is another major signaling pathway within neurons involved in, in, in uh, what's called signal transduction, uh, taking the, the information that comes from a neurotransmitter binding at the surface of the neuron and turning that into changes in the switches of gene expression. Uh, and this signal transduction pathway has also been shown to be sensitive both to lithium and other mood-stabilizing medications. Now, I, I can see that this, as we get down to what these genes do, it gets to be more complicated. And if I asked you questions going into further detail, it would be impossible to do it without some kind of radio PowerPoint presentation uh, to explain all these complex pathways. But uh, where do we, you know, this is to me, personally, I would say this strikes me as fascinating work and, and very exciting. However, uh, the question I always have is, this is great science. What about the person with bipolar disorder? When are you going to be able to do something more for him or her? Absolutely, and that's our main motivation in these kinds of studies, to try to come up with ways to get a handle on this illness and come up with better treatments. We're not looking primarily to develop diagnostic tests. As you can imagine, if there are 80 genes involved, then diagnostic tests are not going to be very helpful. But if we can get a handle on the biochemistry, we might be able to make some real progress on new treatments. That'll take some time, but I think it's encouraging that we're finding the kinds of proteins 
enzymes and other, uh, and, and other proteins that typically are easy drug targets. Now, uh, my friends in the pharmaceutical industry might say, well, there are no easy drug targets because obviously there's a lot of work in going from a, a laboratory finding such as we have to a drug that's safe and effective for human beings. But this is a first step. Well, it certainly sounds like we're getting closer. That's all the time we have. We've been talking about new findings on the genetics of bipolar disorder with Dr. Francis McMahon, a psychiatrist at the National Institute of Mental Health. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. You have been listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.